Leon to Del Arme, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of Bolognese tradition. Today's episode is Foundations Cactus. This time we're talking tactics. So, Martin, welcome back to the podcast. Steven, how you doing? Doing fantastic. Glad to be back, Joshua. It's been too long. Yeah, really been a while since the last time. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> Almost uh, 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Crushing. That's too long without talking about swords. <laughs> so, we decided to do the insane thing and, and double this one up, but uh, we had the time and we wanted to go ahead and get this one knocked out. So even though this is probably going to be the most intense and most uh, disagreement we've had amongst all of our conversations about the foundations of Bolognese fencing, but uh, it's probably going to be the most fun as well. So we're here to talk tactics. So in the course of a sword fight, you start out and you're standing across from your opponent we're moving our feet. What are we watching? Are we watching their sword? My sword? That sexy mesh face of theirs? What are we talking about again? Oh yeah, we're talking about what's going on during the fight. So uh, from the outset, what is it that we're looking at when the fight begins? Um, okay, so first thing I look at is uh, how big are they? Basically, how are they built? And what kind of energy they're giving off? So for me, that's, for the, the ethereal effect there. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically want to know their body language, and um, I want to know how much faster than me they are and how much stronger than me they are. Also, if they're left-hander. <laughs> if they're yeah. left-hander, I don't even fight them. <laughs> they're evil. <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed to wield swords. <laughs> Sinister. <laughs> I yeah, so, quite enjoy fighting left handers, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, actually, it's easy. You just keep attacking their hand, and they're, you're fine. Yeah, also up into Soper Brachio. It's the one time with sword alone you get to go into Soper Brachio. All right. Uh, so, but uh, the uh, the sources tell us that we do need to watch something, and that's the the opponent's sword hand. So yes, you know, there's a general consensus that when you're watching your opponent, especially when you are at wide measure, which we'll define in a little bit here, uh, without losing some people who are you know, really coming at this from a basic perspective. Um, when you are at wide measure with your opponent, you are generally watching your opponent's sword hand. And that's really important because especially when you're fighting with offhand weapons, uh, I, I find that people uh, from a HEMA perspective who do a lot of uh, light gear fencing have a tendency to watch their sword strike their opponent for an emphasis on control. And it's a really bad habit. Because especially when you're fighting with something in your left hand as well, you need to be watching uh, your opponent's sword at all times. And that's why a lot of people fail in making their parries with bucklers or daggers and things like that. Because they let their eyes trail away from where they should be, which is watching their opponent's sword hand. 
Mm. I think actually yeah. the, the sources aren't quite in unison about that. Because uh, in the two-handed sword section, once again, Morozzo tells us, um, like in white play, to actually watch the blade. And like when it gets closer, to watch the left hand, because watch that's the one that's dangerous for, for grappling. To be honest, <laughs> I personally <laughs> do not really watch their sword. But I, I certainly recognize where it is, and I certainly uh, recognize where their hand is more so than their blade, because I think it's really hard to just keep watching the blade moving. I'm more like uh, looking looking through them, so to speak, through their torso. And um, I think sometimes having a look at their feet is more telling than anything else, to be honest. Like you getting know, getting the whole picture is, is what I get at. Mm-hmm. So I, I think maybe there's a thing here. When I'm wearing a fencing mask, I agree with you. I'm kind of looking at their hand and their body. But when I'm fencing without a fencing mask, I am 100% watching their sword. (laughs) Especially the point of their sword and making sure it's nowhere near my eye. Um, So I think maybe that's one of the artificialities that we've introduced in our fencing that doesn't translate. It's it's often hard to really... do find detail through the mesh of a fencing mask. Like we, we kind of lose a lot of that detail, and it's a lot easier to watch these things when there's not a fencing mask in front of us. I'm actually not too sure, but it's, it's, it's a great point anyway, because um, with sharp swords, if they're pointing directly towards you, like the, the blade mm-hmm. just disappears, <clears throat> yep. which is actually... and. This is, brings us back to our uh, last episode, uh, which is actually why lateral movement is kind of nice, because we are then actually able to see the flat of the blade against the background. So that's yeah. a point for, for some kind of circular or indirect movement as well, as soon as I have a sharp sword, and we don't see that rolled tipped sword yep. with a nice uh, color taped on it anymore. Right. And- yeah, and when you're looking at it at an angle, you just get more sword to look at anyway, so it's easier. Yeah. Yeah. So, Minchiolino says, always keep an eye on the opponent's sword hand rather than his face. By looking right. at his hand, you will be able to devise all that he intends to do. And um, I think the Anonymo says to also look at the sword hand and not his face because you could become unreasonably intimidated by looking at their face. <laughs> uh, or something akin to that. I can't, it's been a while since I saw that, but and I, I could pull it up here, but I'm not going to. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, in general, and then um, Murazzo has a, a point, and, and uh, I know Devin gave me some pushback on this, but I, I, think, it's, I think it's a relative point. And, Murazzo generally does tell you to watch either the opponent's blade or his sword hand. And then as you're getting closer to Meza's body, you're watching the left hand, which I think uh, both Manchiolino and the Anonimo both agree with. So it's a, a matter of, again, measure, which we'll, we'll get into here uh, in, in a second. But because um, right. it's a, a core component of, of how, like, the focus of the fight changes based on how close and how far you are away from your opponent. But generally, when you're far away from your opponent or in these scenarios, you are watching their sword hand. Um, And one of the reasons why you're watching their sword hand is because you can tell what guard they're in. And this is where we get into the nature of the guards. Um, So I want to kind of lead this off with a quote from the Anonimo, and then I'll let you guys kind of take it from there, and then I'll, I'll provide my feedback. 
Um, so he says, um, and so we have taught and given the knowledge of the gallant guards that pertain to this ingenious art of defense. For there is no thing in this art that you need to understand more readily. This way, when you find yourself against an enemy, you can immediately identify how the swords are placed. For the attacks one may make with the sword are infinite and innumerable. And so too are the ways in which the swords may be found. Yet from one guard to, or another, not all the attacks will be suitable. And by being shrewd and also being illuminated with the knowledge of your enemy's placement, you'll make effective attacks in the correct tempo using your sword and your body. And by making attacks in this manner, you'll remain secure from harm. Pretty nice. Yeah. Again, coming through, coming through with the wisdom. Nice. Yeah, it's sounds super similar to to Angelo Vijani actually, who also mm -hmm. says like, from any guard, there's of course an infinite amount of movements that you could take, but there is always one that is the most direct, the most threatening, that one that takes uh, the smallest amount of time, and you have to be very aware of that kind of movement and that. I think brings us also then closer to all these tactical concepts that we'll dive into today. Um, he also makes some interesting points on the nature of the guards depending on where the hand is. Like uh -huh. if uh, the sword hand is on the dominant side, he calls it an offensive guard because he um, thinks the mandrito or the imbrocata, so attacks from the dominant side, are more threatening, they expose yourself more, so they are more offensive in nature, while the reverso um, basically covers towards your outside, which is also like the universal parry in, in the Bolognese system, but also like in all northern Italian, probably all Italian fencing. Mm -hmm. um, so the reverso has more that kind of def defensive nature that also strikes towards the opponent's hand. And therefore, all the guards on his left side are called uh, defensive. So I think we can also connect that in with the famous Bolognese uh, fencer, Giacomo di Basel, uh, known north of the Alps as Joachim Meyer, who uh, <clears throat> has a well-known paradigm of provoker, taker, hitter, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. And Mandrito, Reverso, and Thrust work very much in that same concept. The Mandrito is known for inviting, so that's provoking an attack. The Reverso is often used for taking control of the opponent's weapon after they've made the attack and then the hit is of course made with the point because you know why would you hit them with something else yeah <coughs> something that resonates with vijani as well who really prefers the thrust and calls all the guards that already have the point forward perfect perfect yeah while the other ones are imperfect right right yeah and um yeah, and I think that Vigiani, that's the genius of Vigiani's naming system for the guards in particular, is that it does describe the nature of the guards in a, in a succinct manner. Um, you know, it, it's funny because I see from both Manciolino and from uh, Marazzo that they take this sort of infinite and innumerable concept of an attack and instead decide to basically put it into three boxes, which is it's either a mandrito, a reverso, or a thrust. So it either comes from the right, the left, or it's they're attacking with the point. And so they try to simplify it because, again, the ways that somebody can attack are so varied that you don't want to overemphasize like re trying to read and understand what the attack that's coming towards you is rather than just treating it from where it's coming from. 
Um, and so that kind of helps to expedite the process of making a decision based on the attack and how to defend against it. Um, and so that's kind of the, the geniusness of uh, Vigiani in that when you're reading your opponent, if you have the names of his guards in mind, if you can just memorize those and kind of keep those in your pocket, um, you're basically just reading what the potential attacking opportunity of those guards are. And we see that expounded upon both in Marazzo and in Manciolino. And to some extent, uh, the Anonimo from like 346 back in his plays, um, where he gives uh, basically like uh, good actions and then counters to ways that you can attack. It's very similar to um, Manciolino's book one. Um, and uh, in Manciolino's book one and in Marazzo's section, uh, which is sort of his middle section where he has a picture of all the different guards, he talks about what, what the guards are good for and what they're not good for. And so that sometimes uh, I have heard that referred to as the progression of the guards. Uh, he even gives kind of this form that you can go through and he tells you to teach your students how to attack and defend and what is a good attack and what's a good defense from each of those guards as you're going through this progression. So it's actually a really good form to learn for kind of trying to memorize these concepts um, and maybe to learn and use that as a, a framework or a pedagogical tool to sort of build out of. Um, and you can take Manciolino's book one and plug it into Marazzo's progression and then you have this awesome uh, sort of way of kind of approaching this. But the reason I bring that up is because uh, it, it shows that this was the foundational material of like how it was taught. So you would generally learn the different ways to attack and then the different ways to defend based on like what is a good attack from certain guards you know and we get a lot of that from um from Manciolino in particular where he says for example that the only natural attack um from low guards is a thrust um while the only natural attack from the high guards um is to like usually like well it the, the, the high guards are offensive, the low guards are defensive, and that the only natural attack from low guards is a thrust, is what he says. Um, and the point of attacking from a high guard is to induce an attack from them, which you parry, to then hit, and from a low guard to basically probably pressure them and induce them to attack you when you parry and then hit them. Yeah, yeah, because we get this... this um, this further breakdown of this where um, um, Manciolino in particular says that attacks that are high that go towards the head are more intimidating. Mm -hmm. So again, kind of going with this whole, like if somebody wasn't wearing a fencing mask, um, you start your attack high so that way you can attack them low. And he, he goes into talking about how attacks to the head are more like they get create a greater sense of danger because your eyes are your your main feedback unit right and so right. if they see something coming towards their face then they're gonna panic um and then he gives us another quote where he says that uh we have both high guards and low guards the objective of the high guards is to attack and then follow with a parry that of the low guards is the opposite to parry first and then follow with a strike be advised that from the low guards only thrusts are natural attacks. And that's where that other quote that I was talking about comes from. But you get this, this overall sort of uh, didactic nature to the guards, right? Like one is good for one thing, one is good for the other. And how you make your parries um, can, you know, like what guards you go into to make a parry can dictate what your next attack is, right? So if you parry somebody in Gordia de Testa, then your next attack is likely 
it creates an op offensive opportunity where now now your next attack is likely going to be a cut from Gordy to Testa or something like that. So, yeah. What do you think, Martin? Yeah, we have that kind of approach in its infancy stasis of postura contra postura, like forming counter positions to to basically deny the opponent their most direct action of this guard. Basically, in essence, making them taking a longer action, giving you more time to react, and therefore putting the play into a path that is more predictable for you because uh, against infinite amounts of movements, it's really hard to guess the right one. And we really want to be in control. And that is also, I think, the, the whole point of, of provoking the opponent, which can be just so manifold. Like there are so many provocations in the Bolognese system, <laughs> which is, I think, where, where most of these treatises get uh, a lot of their place out of. Yeah. And it's interesting too because like you you get Manchialino talking specifically about how a, a fight with the sharp swords that you shouldn't depart low guards, you know, right. um, if you're fighting with sword alone, you shouldn't depart low guards. As in, not that you shouldn't only go into low guards. I mean, you're still going to defend in higher guards, but like from the, from the outset of the fight, he doesn't want you to leave low guards. So you you already have this kind of approach of kind of a narrow approach to, to fencing, which we'll talk about that, I guess, in a, <laughs> in a minute. It's hard. A lot of these concepts are, are circular. They kind of create feedback loops where they feed back into other concepts. Um, and uh, well, should, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's what creates a sort of a, a thorough approach to fencing. It's just, it's a lot to kind of understand. Um, yeah. But hopefully that's what we can help to help people understand and alleviate here uh, is that, you know, there, there are ways to kind of like break these things down and kind of like think of them relatively simply. Yeah, and it's, uh, that quote of Manchelino comes back again to where your blade is, those actions are more likely. I think he discourages from using high guards because it's harder to defend the low lines, especially the lag. Right. So he stays with a, with a blade lower because it's somewhere in the middle of the body so it can protect the lower lines, it can protect the upper lines. And, of course, uh, having the point forward always helps as well. Yep. Right, and it's noted that in Vijani, that the <clears throat> the alicorno as a guard is preferred in tall fencers, where they don't have to worry about their legs because they're just striking before you can even get close to them. At least that's my yeah. take on it. Yeah, ha having, having a long arm <laughs> yeah. definitely helps, right? Yes, of course. And that kind of feeds back into, um, you know, the probably the greatest quote from the Anonimo, which is, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase here, but that, uh, you know, it, it creates the tactical challenge for your opponent of when your opponent has their point online, you have to work to get it offline. And if right. their point is offline, you have to work to get it online and then take it offline. So if anything, by keeping your point online, um, you, you can kind of create this, uh, this challenge of like, right from the onset, the opponent has the, the, the challenge of like, it's easier to, when somebody's going from a wide guard to an, a narrow guard, it's easier sometimes to use their own momentum to redirect it offline. So it can be faster to, sure. to create that process. Whereas if they have their point online, 
sometimes it creates a, a difficult situation to like get their point offline. You know, we see that really is like the crux of, of all of rapier fencing, right? How do you get your opponent's point offline or how do you get them to extend so that way you can like redirect their momentum in a different direction or gain leverage over top of their sword? Um, but yeah. It reminds me of spear fencing, which is essentially figure out a way to get them to stab at you so you can put their point aside and stab them. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it really is a, it's a great summation of Italian fencing in general, I think, but Bolognese yeah. especially, that we actually want to strike the opponent within them taking a movement. Because right. when they are in guard, when they are still, there is that possibility for an infinite amount of movements that can threaten you. But right. as soon as they take that kind of committed movement, they are now set on a path. And if you can be safe while they're uh, taking that path, either you parry, you're avoiding your leg or whatever, then you can strike them safely and not being struck in the same time. Yeah. I agree. All right, so, and we're going to expound upon that here in a minute because we're going to talk about provocations. Um, and uh, But before we do that, let's um, let's talk about measure. So, um, Martin, you want to take it away? Yeah, so um, the concept of misura is actually not too prominent in the Bolognese system, in my opinion. Um, it's more the wide play, close play more relates towards like the relative positions of the fighter let's say it this way we all we can get uh, more into this when we are talking about wide and narrow play um certainly measure is super important uh in the bolognese system and is it's emphasized by manchelino dalla as well like manchelino says something on, along the line there are fencers who strike like without knowing the times the tempo and the measure and while they may land a strike or two, they are still like have no art and are to be blamed for this or something like this. <laughs> so really timing, measure and position, it's, it's always that kind of foundation of every martial art and in the Bolognese system just as well. Yeah. So I figure it's probably kind of like breathing. Um, so they never tell you in the Bolognese system that you should be breathing while you're fencing because I think they figure that it's sort of intuitive that you will do so. Um, I find it helpful to think of measure like there's four measures, kind of, uh, which you just sort of learn. There's wide measure, which is where somebody has to take a big step to reach you. Uh, there's middle measure, um, where somebody has to take a small step to reach you. There's narrow measure where somebody doesn't have to step to reach you. And then there's grappling distance where you, it's time to drop the swords and it's, you're just wrestling at that point. Um, so from the, from the streets point of view, that seems to be, um, the relevant, uh, measures as it ties into tactics um, because each one involves a different set of tactical considerations and I believe it is implicit in the idea uh, measures implicit in the Bolognese idea of play so gioco stretto, gioco largo, mezzo spada prese basically hmm. yeah so um, what do you call them? Giacomo Basso? 
Is that what you call it? Giacomo de Basso. Yeah. Giacomo de Basso. Joachim, right? Yeah. Giacomo de <laughs> okay. Basso. All right. So yeah. Giacomo de Basso actually has a uh, an interesting um, take on this where he says that um, I think the zoofectin starts when uh, two opponents are about six feet apart. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, generally, that is like if you were to hold your sword out at full extension and you were to have like a straight back and you were to cross just the tip of your sword with that of your opponent's about six feet, right? So it's two steps into your opponent. Um, and uh, I think that this is actually is is in the Bolognese sources uh, because I think it is what the senyo is. Uh, the senyo uh, later on is described by... Um, uh, Palladini as the compass, um, mm-hmm. which is similar to what we see from Dociolini. Uh, well, actually, he has basically the same illustration as, as Dociolini. Um, but I think that uh, the the same concept exists within the compass as it does within Marazzo Senio. Um, and then, obviously, Meyer copies Marazzo Senio because he had a copy of Marazzo and was just copying him. And I think that's where he gets his six feet from. So... What Martin illustrated in the footwork episode about the, the structure of the senio, there's a symbol, uh, there's a, a big circle, and then there's a, a smaller circle on the inside. And so if you were to start with your two opponents were to start with their front foot on the edge of that circle, and one of them were to take a passing step in, they would be on that little circle. And so that's the compass that's showing you the sort of progression of measure. And of course, that that symbol moves with with the fight, right? Um, right. So, but uh, so when two people step in, they're both on that smaller circle that's on the inside, and that's when they are crossing at mezzospada. So I see it as there's a breakdown of wide measure is the start of the outside of the circle. Um, if you were to take, let's say, a half step, or your opponent were to be a half step closer to you, um, and they were had one foot in the middle of that uh, outside circle then they would be in that area. And so if they stepped in even closer, you would only have to do a half step to get to Mezzospada. So it's kind of a, a way to kind of like gauge where you're at in the fight. And that's what that, that compass is. So Palladini's advice is to not let your uh, students become too dependent on the compass uh, for their understanding of measure, because when you're in a real fight, you can't have a symbol on, painted on the floor, which also indicates to me that this was a, a sort of a pedagogical tool that was used in Bologna to teach measure. So that's the same conclusion we came to from working with it. Actually, literally exactly what you said. Two people on the outside is wide distance. One on the inside circle, one on the outside is medium distance. Two on the inside circle is mezzospada. That's kind of cool. Yep. It's always fun when like you independently kind of come to the exact same conclusion. Yeah, and then I mean, and you can do a lot with this the senyo. You know, you can yeah. you can teach circular footwork by using the the diamond or the sort of the the, um, the triangle yeah. patterns, yeah. Um, and that's what you see specifically with um, with uh, uh, Dociolini and Altoni, who both you know use use the the symbol um, in that they but they do it with a little bit of different step. They uh, they prefer to do their stepping a lot more like Delagoki. Uh, where they, it's often a trailing step, so you would attack by going to like your your forward position. They would lunge, and then they would let that back foot trail, and then they would come back to that second line. Um, so, cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. So now, <laughs> now we need to talk about Aristotle. 
Oh God. <laughs> so, okay. um, <laughs> Martin, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of Vigiani here? Yeah, let's, let's talk about tempo. So I try to put it really simply at first. Um, a tempo refers to like a time frame, uh, the time frame that the motion of your opponent takes when they are in measure, especially. Then it's relevant, at least. Like I said, if they are standing still, lots of things can happen. Once they take a motion, they are taking a tempo. That's also where in the last episode we said, like a mezzovolta of the hand is accompanied by a mezzovolta of the body. So a half turn of the body, also accompanied by a half step, also accompanied by a half tempo. And a full turn of the hand, a full turn of the body, accompanied by a full tempo. It's some kind of way to um, compare motions with with each other and to tell us the right time to strike the opponent. Emotion always lies between two rests. That's basically the point. The motion, it can be a strike, can be a thrust, can be just a transition between two guards. But these guards, these are the points in time where you're resting, where you have the possibility to do all kinds of stuff. But as soon as you're taking a committed motion, you're taking a tempo and you're making yourself somewhat vulnerable. So you have to be very aware of this. But you also can provoke your opponent to take these tempi, to take a longer pass, to to go around your blade, to then be able to strike them safely while they cannot strike you. So that's, I think, is as um, briefly as I can put tempo. That was that was brilliant. That was, that was pretty good. That was great. Yeah, I, I think that's a probably that was like anonymo esque succinct breakdown <laughs> of Vigiani. Because as we all know, Vigiani gets very wordy about tempo, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But go ahead, Stephen. What do you think about tempo? Okay, so we'll ignore the kind of more boring version of tempo, which. Dalagoke uses where he talks about as opportunities to strike. It's useful, but not necessarily that interesting, in my opinion. I think the other in- interesting idea of tempo is this idea of motion and rest. And I think from a, a practical fencing standpoint, what it really means for the Bolognese fencer is that one continuous motion is almost always faster than two shorter motions. And this is, the, this is why the nature of Bolognese fen- fencing is very much based on a continual flow of the sword as opposed to a sort of stop-start action. So one classic example that I, I use to explain to my students all the time um, is the defense against a mandrito to the head. Okay, the hardwired, very natural defense for all people is to want to bang it to the side and then make their riposte, right? You're, you're all familiar. Basically what they call like a saber parry four. Boom, you bang it to the side, you create your tempo, and then you go. You beat with a mezzo mandrito. A beat with a mezzo mandrito, whatever you want to call it. Okay, the problem with that is it's actually, um, when you go to beat them, they can then swing around and attack you on the other side because you have a... You have beat, so that's one tempo, and then before your sword can come back, there's a third tempo in there, which is the tempo of rest. 
because as your sword moves laterally, before it can move back the other way, it has to come to a complete stop. And so it basically makes this sword going from right to left and then back to right take three tempi. And so the optimal action is one in which you thrust over the opponent's weapon and threaten them with the point so that they don't actually have time to come back around because you're striking and moving in a single continuous flowing tempo. And this is what underlies the Anonymous basic defense against the Mandrito to the outside, which is basically to step to the side and go into Guardia d'Entrate. Um, and that's the best way I explain to students, and it's also why it's very important not to allow your sword to move laterally, uh, because to make it then go to the other side is uh, too tempy, basically, because it has to come to a stop and then start going back. So for the Bolognese fencer, what we want is continuous motion of the sword for the most part. It's always faster for us to redirect a moving sword, or almost always faster to redirect a moving sword uh, onto a new line of attack than to go, stop, and then come back. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely uh, merit there for for you know parrying and guard. You know, because then it allows you that is your moment of rest. So if, when you meet your opponent's sword in their defense, if it's in a in a position of rest, then it allows you to now make a, another move. And that's where the false edge parry comes in. That's why Bolognese fencing is so great. That's exactly right. Because right, you're coming here and then you just make one continuous motion back to the other line with your false edge. And so exactly. they're a tempi behind you. And it yeah. actually works out that the biggest problem is you're more likely to be in front of them and then screw up your parry that way. Yeah, so I think I think a way to kind of like help uh, break this down in terms of like how to weaponize tempo um, mm -hmm. in terms of like from a defensive perspective, right? I think what right. you were lamenting Dalagoke about uh, and his uh, his offensive tempos uh, is that they are offensive and not defensive. And the defensive construct is actually relatively simple. If you can make a smaller tempo into, then if you a can make a smaller tempo, tempo then, right. then you're, yeah, into a larger tempo, then you will always win, right? As right. long as you have good structure. Right. So we talked about the guards and the guards provide structure. Uh, the anonymous Vienna is not a Bolognese source, but it, it has a really good description of this. And it basically just says that if you can make a smaller tempo and the tempo of a bigger tempo, then you will win. Right. The, just right. try to make your movement smaller than your opponents. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to keep everything forward and really tiny out in front of us like we're doing small sword. Um, what it means is that we have to go between, um, you know, really considerable positions of defense. And um, so from a defensive perspective, um, I think that this is described uh, both by, uh, I, I know it's in Marazzo, I think it's in, uh, I think, yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure it's in Manchialino as well. It, it is in Manchialino. Basically what they say is to, um, the, the best defense is in the tempo of your opponents or in the motion of your opponent's actions. So if you can do an action in between their actions, uh, so what they're talking about is a defensive action, um, then you will have advantage. Um, so let me see if I can find that right here. And I was just, I don't think Dalagoke is five tempi for attacking or bad. I just don't think they're as interesting for understanding the basic concept of tempo. 
If, if Joshua finishes, I'll, I'll, I'll go more into detail on these 510p. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think I'm going to find it here, but um, I should have had that highlighted. But um, basically, the premise is, and so um, Marazzo, Manchiolino gives it in his introduction, um, and, uh, and Marazzo gives it in his book three. Uh, it's in the two-handed sword section at the end. So it's after okay. the second assault. It's at the beginning of the third assault uh, where he describes this action. Um, oftentimes, I like to compare this to the German idea of Endes. Um, mm -hmm. It's not too dissimilar to that where Endes is a, sort of a disrupting action. Um, and it, it has to deal with extension a lot of times. Uh, your opponent is extending when they're delivering an attack. And if you can disrupt that by going into it with structure, you're going to win. And oftentimes, by making smaller motions, uh, you can you can do this um, relatively easily. So we see this illustrated in Manchiolino in particular by doing what I like to call the box or the triangle. Um, and um, where his three basic parries that he gives for most actions, using just his body, are... A mezzomandrito, which covers uh, you know that outside line, Gordia de Faccia, which is that falso coming back from Gordia de, um, uh, uh -huh. from uh, Porta de Ferro, or Gordia de Testa, right? So depending on where your opponent is attacking um, or how they're attacking, those are usually his three things, and that kind of creates a box around you. Um, and it, by using those three as your primary parries, at least in Manchiolino's system. Um, you can basically defend everything in a smaller tempo than your opponent having to pull off of your sword to go for a cut around. If you're just going from Porta de Ferro to Gordia de Faccia, you're making a much smaller motion than they are, and you're, now you're stabbing them in the face. Contra tempo. Right? So, so let's talk about the attacking aspect of, of tempo there. So that's kind of like the overall defensive philosophy. Again, just to kind of like sum that up because there was a lot of talking and, and also looking for stuff. Um, just make a smaller tempo and the motion of your opponent's tempo and make them make a bigger tempo, right? So like when you're defending yourself, I'm going on a tangent here, when you're defending yourself, if you can make your opponent give a bigger tempo, right, in, in how you defend yourself. So again, the nature of the guards is if I can defend myself in a way that forces my opponent to give a bigger tempo, then it's easier for me to give a smaller tempo in their secondary action, right? right. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about the Lagokis 510B because I think there's still a great shortcut to to recognize some kind of motions that particularly lend themselves for you to attack your opponent safely. So as we said, we want to ourselves move within a motion of our opponent. And the first tempo that the Lagoki gives us is actually the tempo that we get after parrying the opponent's blow. And while this is usually interpreted as a kind of like two tempo kind of motion, so we have first have a parry and then we immediately strike after, so we are not resting, we are performing this all in one motion, either with a thrust or with, uh, with a, for example, we let's take that uh, Mezzo Mandrito parry to the inside and we strike around with a Reverso, for example. We are still like attacking within the recovery of our opponent or if they still want to keep on attacking us they need to free up their blade so as having still like a motion either around the hilt of our blade or around the tip of the blade 
that gets harder to do as we are moving forward and threatening them. But it also, like in that kind of uh, thing, I think uh, the contra tempo or stesso tempo sometimes called, um, is also included here, right? Doing the, the parry and repost all in one motion is something that is super prominent in Dalagokia as well. So, for example, if you really know the angle that they will attack you, then you can just parry in Guardi di Faccia, basically already shooting your point forward and you're in essence, thrusting them while their blade is still on uh, the the striking path towards you. Okay, but it's still moving within within the tempo of our opponent. So the second one is letting the opponent's blow pass uh, our body and striking immediately afterwards. So especially if they are striking full blow. So this goes maybe a bit more towards the white play and they're leaving their blade offline and it's in a motion away from your body that's a great rate for you to enter in because that blade's still moving away. It is actually for a blade that moves away it's harder to get back on track than for a still blade. So this is one of those instances where where moving blade is actually disadvantageous when it moves into the wrong direction. Um, so that's also the concept in the German tradition of Nachreisen, for example. Mm -hmm. Then we have the opponent uh, that is charging a blow, so especially for opponents that are standing in a low guard and they want to throw a strike anyway, they need to transition to some kind of a high guard. So they, in essence, need to, to lift their hand or to at least to lift the tip of their blade to form any meaningful blow. And that is, of course, once again, a motion that doesn't threaten you, but it is a motion, so you can abuse that motion to strike your opponent and close out the, the direct line of their uh, follow-up attack, for example. The fourth is uh, they change guard without reason. Once again, it's a motion. It once again doesn't threaten you. So it's a perfect opportunity for you to, to go in and attack them and also close out the most direct line of the guard that they are now getting in. And the last one is if they raise their front foot, that's something that we talked about uh, in the last episode as well. If they are in a, some kind of balanced position, so if they are not with their weight completely on their back foot, then lifting the front foot will leave the body weight in front of the back foot, which means they will be starting to fall forward and they can only switch the direction of that movement if they put in uh, putting their front foot down again. So they have that kind of commitment and it's hard to get out of there and it's probably also a bit harder to parry from there yeah these are basically the the five tempi that Dalagoki gives us of course you could probably imagine a couple of tempi more like he, he also talks about like the movement of the back foot but i think like for beginners this is really a great place to start looking for these motions trying to make the opponent take these kind of motions. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I think Dalagokie there really kind of sums up a lot of things that we see throughout other treatises as well. So uh, you can find examples of these like all the way through Murato and Manciolino. Um, you know, Manciolino in his discussion of tempo does say that, um, you know, he, he gives two really kind of uh, more direct discussions of tempo. Um, 
and that is uh, there's one where he talks about uh, if you're trying to make the opponent deliver an attack in order to strike him in the same tempo, right? So that's kind of that contra tempo um, idea that you were discussing. Um, then you should deliver the same attack three or four times in a row uh, as an invitation. And then, um, you know, it's common for people to kind of uh, ape one another is what he says. And so, like, you've got... Um, and there's another one where he says that the correct tempo to attack is when your opponent's sword has gone past you, right? So um, there, there are two kind of like really clear things. And then he says that, you know, um, fencers who deliver blows without any measure or tempo are, may indeed reach the opponent with their attacks. I think you had quoted this earlier, um, but will not redeem themselves with their bad form being fruit of chance rather than skill. Um, instead, we call the gravi and the apostati. Uh, those who seek to attack their opponent with tempo and elegance. Um, and then with, uh, with Murato, you know, with the, the chambering blows thing in his uh, sword and targa section, he talks about how if an opponent is going to deliver a cut, they have to raise their hand. If they're going to deliver a thrust, they have to pull their hand back. Um, and so that's, that's where he tells you to watch their sword hand, right? So kind of like going back, feeding back into the things that we've already talked about, is like you can see how these all create these feedback loops of like certain things um, create certain opportunities and tempos a lot of times are based on an opponent doing something that they shouldn't at least the the tempos of attack a lot of times are based on an opponent doing something that they shouldn't be doing when they're in measure yeah so the five tempos are kind of like how to take advantage of your opponent's mistakes Yes. And then the okay. rest of the section is, if your opponent's not a dummy, how you actually have to fence them. Yes. Now, or, do you want, want, to, want to emphasize then the, the meaning of the provocations or of these tempi is like not to wait for the opponent to just strike you, right? We right. always want to be proactive. We also want to force these tempi. You also quoted Manchelino to make the opponent uh, throw a certain attack, right? That's right. always the goal. And it's always um, emphasized in Vijani once again, who uh, was asked if he prefers to be on the offense or on the defense. And he favors everything else being equal to be on the defense because from that commitment of the opponent springs a certain kind of credibility where we can then, if we're... Um, basically provoke them to do that kind of action, do our contra-tempo thrust, or do our almost immediately parry-repost action. All these kind of stuff are way safer to as compared to just striking into a still and standing opponent who might just be ducking away and striking towards your leg, even if they, um, if they sacrifice their head or something. That's something that we see in tournaments still today. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the, and the observation of tempo, you know, is is really important. Um, and this might segue into something uh, we can expound upon a little bit later when we really talk about like the overarching tactics. Maybe when we give our, our full tactical breakdowns of how we think these things progress. But um, there's a quote from Anciolino that he says, "Just as you should not strike without parrying, you should not parry without striking. Right. Always observing the correct tempi." Um, if you were always to parry without striking, you would make your timidity plain to your adversary unless you were to push the opponent back with your parry, in which case you would show your valor. Correct parries, in fact, are performed going forward and not backwards. In this manner, you can not only reach your opponent, 
but you will also attenuate his blow against you as you um, as from close by the opponent can only strike you with the part of the sword to the mid blade to the hilt which is um, to the much worse it would be if he were to reach you with the other half of the sword so what's what's interesting about that is basically like again talk about like succinct tactical paradigms there um, but one of the things that's interesting there is is Manchiolino is talking about both tempo and measure in that sentence um, and also uh, the structure and the nature of the guards. So you're recognizing the correct tempi, you're using the proper parries, and you're parrying going forward, which limits your opponent's uh, measure, right? And then at the same time, because you're going forward in your parries rather than backwards or staying still, you're also making your opponent create a bigger tempo on their second action. So if I were to parry in Gordia de Faccia and I were to step forward, or let's say I was to parry in Gordia de Testa and stepping forward, my opponent has to make a bigger action to disengage my sword and come around to give a, a proper cut, um, which means now I have a smaller motion that I have to do in order to catch their second action, and I've forced them to make a bigger parry. So you can see how, again, all these kind of start to feed back into one another and create this feedback loop of like what is the correct way to go for fencing. So if you adhere to these general principles and rules of like, these are good things to kind of create admonitions around or things that you would just say, like these are, are rules that I would follow or, or at least like structure my interpretation or fencing off of, then you know, a lot of times you'll find you know, success in what you're doing. Cool. Yeah. And it, um, Let's really tie up tempo and measure together because they both relate so close to each other because um, bri bridging more distance just takes uh, a longer time, right? Which is also why Vijani um, emphasizes to, to stand in the right measure, to have to take like an extension or a lunging step or a passing step at the very, very most. Because everything else, it's basically just suicide because they have so much time to react that the risk that you run into a contra-tempo action is such, uh, it's, it's so great that it's basically suicide. Yeah, I think it's, everything in fencing is relative. It's you relative to your opponent. And uh, we can draw on Einstein there with his theory of relativity, which basically found that space and time are essentially the same thing they're just like two flavors of it and so measure and tempo are essentially just two flavors of the same thing yeah, yeah. and we ha and if we have measure and tempo and then the the position of the of the swords mm, that's why and our opponent then it it really gets interesting because that is also why i think that measure isn't as clearly defined as in the bolognese system because mm -hmm. In certain kinds of positions, or uh, if we're in certain kinds of positions, I can get much closer. As right. for example, in Guardia da Licorno, where I'm more open, open, and I need to to take uh, a wider measure right. to, I mean, to keep myself in, safe. If you're in guard of the wild pig, narrow measure is like you know, or wide measure is just right up and for right all so, up yeah, in the right guy. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I know what you got to do. You've got one choice, and it's easy as pie for yeah. me to take it from you. Which is yeah. also why these uh, close positions with a with a blade pointing towards the opponent were favored mm -hmm. so much yeah. by uh, by Marcellino and also by the later rapier masters as well. Yeah, and it's it's also yeah we'll we'll, we'll kind of expound upon that. I think um, 
it's it's interesting because if people really want to kind of put themselves in a renaissance mindset here in particular there's um there's a really interesting aspect of that um you know this discussion is through the muse of boca de ferro and boca de ferro did have connections to the bentivoglio family and to a chiellini whose brother alessandro was one of the first uh, philosophers to take the Occam's razor into Aristotle in the Bolognese, well, at least in on the continent. So Occam cool. had already started writing, and that's what made Alessandro like the leading Aristotle um, sort of philosopher um, at the at the uh, Bolognese University. So when we talk about like you know Einstein's theory of relativity. Like you here, you have this concept of what are the frameworks of what we're looking at for these ideas, like these deeper philosophical philosophical concepts that Manciolino harkens on a lot. He talks about the philosopher. He's talking about Aristotle, right? So where Vigiani talks about Aristotle, it's not dissimilar. And um, what the context that this conversation is probably happening from is from Alessandro Acciolini. So. And you can find Alessandro Chiellini's work for free on, on Google Playbook. So if anybody wants to get super nerdy and really like read into it, you can. <laughs> we'll have an episode on that later at some point, I promise. Um, all right, so what is the average airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're going to do a Monty Python, you have to at least attempt a horrible British accent. <laughs> What is the average airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> that was good. It brings me back my, to my youth. That's right. That was my best Tim the Enchanter. I, that was I fantastic, man. <laughs> so, fantastic. Um, because it feels like that, right? It feels oh, like, yeah. you know, African or European. There's a lot of subjectivity to what what it is that we're discussing. And, and that's why I threw that in there, because I think it's a... a a fun moment to just kind of pause, take a break, recognize that there's a lot of, of objectivity and, and, rel- and sort of uh, just, it, it really depends, right? A lot of times it depends, but um, there's a lot to explore and try to understand here. Hopefully we did a good job of conveying the basics. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll try to surmise that later on and, and really bring it all back together. But all right, so now let's get really crazy here um let's talk about wide play and narrow play all right now it's gonna get spicy all right what is what is wide play okay i'll i'll give uh, again a short primer i think wide play in comparison to narrow or um, close play is basically unconstrained because um, gioco stretto. Stretto is also like a derivative of stringere. So I think these concepts are also like closely related. And in white play, basically, you either have the distance between you or you are in positions that are not immediately threatening where you can still afford full tempi, full motions, full blows of the sword, full strikes where you can actually do um, what Marozzo and Manciolino describe as uh, entry to the play and embellishments and all that kind of beautiful stuff without giving your opponent like um, a huge tempo to just thrust you in, but also to already start the play and um, get it onto like a psycho- uh, psychological kind of level 
where you are trying to program the opponent for them to do a certain kind of strike where you can then enter and thrust them in contra tempo, for example. Okay. Yeah. So I, I would just add that mostly, for me at least, the distance or um, the, the, you know, the defining characteristics of wide play is that you allow your point to go out of presence. Okay. So you cut... And then your point is no longer threatening to them, and when people, when your point is no longer threatening that to them, it changes the game a lot. Uh, it specifically tends to turn into a lot of hand targeting. Yeah, yeah. from the anonymal perspective. Certainly, Morozzo as well, and the yeah. two-handed sword section, right in the the yeah. first assault, which he described specifically to being void play. There are lots of actions that target uh, towards the opponent's hands or provoke towards the opponent's legs even to then catch the, the incoming strike uh, above or something like this. Yeah. Have you guys... So I always think of this as a... Um, like, imagine there's like a laser vector, right? So there's just this, this box of a laser, right? And not like a going to cut you into pieces laser, but just like a... Just highlight, right? If, you, if somebody comes forward in front of you, just imagine them coming forward in a fencing position, right? As they go through, let's say that their hand is just like, there's this laser that travels down their body as parts start to become more open, right? So if somebody is in guard, the first things that become, uh, will, will pass through that laser field will be the hand and the leg, mm -hmm. right? So those are our wide play targets because those are the things that are going to be measure dependent, the first targets that are actually available for us to strike. Also, if somebody's sword is not pointing at you, their hand is pointing at you, period. It, it well, is, yeah, it is literally impossible to, to you, you either are protecting, you know, you're either basically have your point forward and you're protecting your hand, or you're not and you're asking for your hand to get hit. That is the, that is the target. So, right. Well, and that's, that's kind of like yeah. the, the... And that's also what's coming tactic. into measure, right. That is the tactic of wide play usually, right? So right. wide play... Um, is either to try to get the opponent to commit to an action to, again, going back to the anonymous principle. If their point is online, you work to get it offline. Mm -hmm. If their point is offline, you work to get it online so that way you can get it, offline, it offline and then strike them safely. Yep. Right. That whole concept is basically how to approach wide play and narrow play. Because if somebody's guard is wide, then eventually you're going to have to get them to commit to bring their point back online so that way you can take it offline, right? That's right. just, it, that's how you would approach somebody in a wide guard, according to or, the anonymous. Or you hit their hand. Or you threaten their hand, which they then force them would to bring put them their to, point in front of you and, so that you can yeah, then yeah. set their sword aside and then do that. That's it's actually, basically, it's broadsword fighting. So wide play is basically broadsword. No, 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 don't say that. No, you don't think so? <laughs> no, no I, I, I don't think so either. Okay, I think um, like that taking their point offline j just doesn't only refer to physically taking it offline via a blade action of yourself. But if you step offline yourself, it's the, the sword points uh, besides you, you've taken it offline as well. And in that kind of motion, you could strike towards the hand safely as well, for example. This is where I think like all these... Falso Dritti and this mm -hmm. that and Falso Manco that uh, comes in at this kind of stage where you try to make your 
opponent commit to like a close play action where they actually thrust at you, but you're mm -hmm. stepping out and you're hitting them with white play, just as the Anamonimo describes it as well. Or, or the other rule is if your opponent has their point online, that you have to take it offline in order to strike them. Right? That's the that's the other crux of this. Now, follow me here. Okay. Now this is this is something to help people with interpretation. That's kind of our goal here. So. Um, this is where I, I really wanted to kind of talk about this. Um, when you're interpreting a play, if an opponent goes into, like, if your sword, let's take Marazzo's Abadamente de Spada Soul, okay? You're throwing a falso to your opponent's eyes. That's your first action. To his eyes? Then, to their eyes. Okay. Cool. Right. And then you cut a Mandrito Squalombrato that goes down into Porta de Ferro Larga. Your opponent at that point has either stepped back or was already in wide measure, right? They're, they're, they're far enough from you that you are able to do that action and bring your point down offline, right? So typically when you're creating a uh, sort of a patient or B-side interpretation for your plays, you can kind of tell what your opponent is doing based on the guards that, the, that they tell you to go into. For Marazzo in particular, we see a retreating opponent a lot through the beginning of that play. Now... When that person tries to counterattack, let's say they, they think that they're going for knock rise and type actions. Maybe he's countering a bunch of Germans. Maybe this is what Giovanni della Bandineri was thinking when he said that he's going to go out and teach those Germans a lesson that shot him with a falconet, right? Um, but what, what basically what happens is Moranto is setting a trap with that falso and then that Mantrito that goes down into Porta de Ferro Larga. When the, uh, the opponent then attacks and tries to go either for a thrust or a cut, they're going to bring their point back online. Then he comes back with a rising falso, does a slicing action towards their arm, redoubles that cut and attacks the head, right? So there, now he's gone for his redoubled Mandrito. But he's gone with that redoubled Mandrito back down to Porta de Ferro Largo, which tells us that our opponent has, again, withdrawn from, uh, from close measure, right? They, they are now wide, again, because he allows his sword to go down into Porta de Ferro Largo. Otherwise, it would be suicide because that tempo coming back means that he's, he's anticipating that he has enough of a tempo to let his sword go down into Porta de Ferro Largo, right? So then we do a big rising falso once again, clearing our opponent's sword, and we step around and cut a reversal that goes from teeth to knees, right? All the way through their body. He says from their head down through their toes, right? So there we beat their sword away. Now we're doing a big cleaving cut that goes through our opponent. But in both of those actions, Morazzo is setting a trap for the opponent to bring his point back online, right? And then he's clearing their point offline. So that's how you can weaponize and tactically think your way through how do you use wide play? Look at Morazzo's Apartamente de Spada Solo. He tells you how to use wide play. You're doing it where if your opponent retreats from you and you're pressuring your opponent with those initial actions, you are because if, if their opponent stays and they keep their sword online, then the general rule of wide play, as given by the Anonimo, is well actually by everybody, is that in wide play you let your sword go wide. In narrow play, you make sure that your point stays online, right? So I think the the anonymous basically says that your cuts go full, and then um, in in mezz in, uh, in, uh, in uh, strata that your 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 point your cuts are half right. So um, I think yeah. that's an agreement between both uh, Manchiolino and the anonymous. But so there, that's 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 kind of what I'm getting at, right? So you know that you've got that wide action. Now you have that trap set that you can go to clear your opponent's blade because they're going to want to try to get your point back online. So they're going to try to counterattack in some way, or they think they've got you in that tempo. So this is how you can weaponize tempo 
right? You can give your opponent the a tempo that they think they can exploit, right? So again, that knock rising concept, right? Or maybe a, a, a scholar of Giovanni Dallagocchi sees that you've allowed your sword to go wide and they think that they can counter thrust back sure. through that. But because you've stopped in guard, because you've stopped in larga, now you come back with a rising falso, which is a smaller tempo rather than cutting a reversal, which is what they might expect from an, an, a natural fencer, if you will, to steal something from Giganti. Um, and now you have the advantage. Sure. So yeah, you use wide play as a way to induce timid fencers into fencing with you, essentially, by creating... Uh, Nice, sexy openings. You you can. Um, so yeah, but typically, like if you're pressuring an opponent, like you're you're giving the. I'll save that. That you're you're onto something there, Stephen. I think I think we'll talk about that when we bring these two things together. But let's talk about Strata first. Sure. Okay. All right. So Strata, uh, Martin. What is Strata? Yeah, so in comparison to the white play, where you can basically still afford these full motions, full cuts, full tempi, in Stretta, the, the play is constrained. Um, we usually have our blades in, in line with the opponent. This is also where the Stretta position comes from. Um, and we are, we are advised to, to just take half tempi, so really keeping our, our motions narrow and short and quick and exerting some kind of control over the opponent's sword because it got so much more dangerous right now. It's also probably linked to a bit of closer measure, but once again this uh, depends on, on the position of the blades and the, the bodies of the two opponents. So and then the, your target in Joko Strada is usually your opponent's sword. So you're usually trying to set their sword aside one way to threaten them. As opposed to in Joko Largo, you're, you're looking more to try to hit their hand a lot of the time. Or to, you know, to invite them in and then hit them and then do that. Uh, but the actions, like Martin is saying, are a lot shorter. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think one of the differences is that your blade is still free. I think that's how I would distinguish Joko Stretta from Metzaspada. So you have a sword, it may be touching your opponent's weapon, but you still have a free sword, and they still have to at least take the time of a step in order to reach your body, which gives you some time and distance to work with. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, in general, like the, the basic, like, matter-of-fact, like, no-nonsense description that we get from uh, both Manchilino and the Anonimo is that um, in in Mezis, or in uh, in Strata uh, that your cuts will be half instead of full. Uh, that's their basic basic description of uh, what we're looking at when it comes to wide play and narrow play. Um, now, the interesting thing is, uh, especially with Dalagokie, um in particular, and this is one of the reasons why I usually see. Dalogokie is kind of a later iteration and, and starting to look a little bit more like um, what we'd expect from the Rapier Masters um, as a transitional source is because he says that the fencing of the day is narrow. And we see that um, both in, you know, in contemporary authors, really after the 1550s, uh, we see that transition to just prima, seconda, terza, corta, right? And so that's kind of what he represents. And, uh, and so... I think with the, the narrow play in particular, 
um, you know, that's where we start to get advice um, other than just like let your attacks be, um, you know, half or only deliver like a, a Meza attacks um, is we see that the anonymous says um, not to let your sword be found unless it's greatly to your advantage. Right. Um, that's another piece of advice that he gives, because if you have your point forward presented to your opponent and you're in a narrow guard, um, then you are running the risk of your opponent finding your sword and gaining advantage over your sword, like what Stephen was saying uh, when we were talking about footwork and the guards and things like that. He's really been kind of emphasizing that point, um, and for good reason, um, because you know you don't want that sword to be found, uh, because then you are at a disadvantage. So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of like narrow play. You know, your biggest threat from narrow play um, is that. Uh, usually a lot of narrow plays initiated with a thrust if you're kind of like following um, Dalagokie and, and Manchiolino there uh, where Manchiolino says that uh, you know from the narrow guards or from the low guards uh, only the, the only natural attack is the thrust and you see that a lot of times that the initial provocation or action that starts those actions is a thrust or a defense against a thrust followed by some sort of a counterattack. Yeah, I think if we were looking at the Anonymo, the, the prototypical Joko Stretto play would be a beat, feint, disengage, and thrust. Now you want some kind of control over the opponent's blade, either by closing them out with a beat or just via position or something like this. Yes, and then from there you would usually attack as direct as possible. Right. With the idea that they will then go to cover that and then you will that's when your real attack is going to commence. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I can quickly go in over uh, Angelo Vigiani's three advantages at this point. Oh, yeah. Because that's, it yeah, that's specifically that. refers, I think, to, to yeah. the close play. Yep. White play a bit as well, but um, like his three advantages are that of striking, of stepping, and uh, that of position, in essence, of guard. Um, let's start with the last one because it's the easiest to understand. If your sword points at them and uh, their sword doesn't point at you, then you have the uh, advantage of guard. In essence, you're exerting greater danger to them than they do to you. And in essence, I would generally describe it as also like putting your sword in the most direct way of their attack. So into the, the way of their most direct attack. So um, you do get this advantage. He describes it by uh, actually throwing mezzo dritti and reversi. So um, using these half uh, cuts as a beat or maybe just as a controlling action is definitely a possibility. And other authors we also see falsi employed here can be um, you can get there with feints as well. So um, feinting some kind of action, they parry and you're going around and just establishing control in that kind of position. It's totally legit. Um, and he also speaks like there are like millions of ways to, to get this kind of advantage. Footwork also plays a great role here. Which brings me to, to the advantage of striking, where he emphasizes to be basically in the right distance, being um, with the feet, uh, or that's, that comes next, um, with the feet in a, in a distance that you just need an, an accrescimento or a lunging step, like I said earlier, passing step at the very most, but more importantly, uh, you want to be, you want to get that uh, advantage of guard in a measure where you can actually make something out of it. Right. That's that's really important. And the last one was um, the advantage of stepping, where he emphasizes 
to be in a closer stance is more advantageous than to be in a wider stance at that measure because of course from there you can extend more and if they retreat you are in a better position and this wreath i think is where the also like concept of stringere in Marozzo, Manciolino, but also in Dallagocchio comes in once again because it's always linked to that kind of gathering step into what I think exactly that measure where you just need an extension of your front foot to hit the opponent, where you're in a position of control, the advantage of guard. So you have all these uh, three advantages and if they now do nothing, then you just strike them because you have so many advantages that you just don't hesitate and go in there. So their only option is to either just strike you or to retreat and perform maybe some kind of defense. The first one, we are controlling them so much so that their attack should take so long that a contra-tempo action is possible, that you strike them while they're attacking you because you force that fight from such a position of control that you can do that. And if they're retreating, well, they're taking... For, for once, they are putting some shame on themselves. Yeah, they're <laughs> cowards. Maybe, maybe in, a, in a modern context, context, they are stepping out of a ring, so that's still, still useful. Um, on, another side, on another note, um, they're taking an action that doesn't threaten you, and you can then just proceed to pressuring them to stringere. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, that's brilliant, because I think that really highlights... Um, you know, how you kind of like bring these things together. Um, and that with Michiolino and even the Anonymous first play, which I think illustrates this really well, is that with that gathering step, you're constraining your opponent with Strindria space. You're also controlling the center, right? Well, oftentimes you have the availability of that falso to their sword. Um, and from there, you know, you can go through Marazzo's or uh, Michiolino, excuse me, Michiolino's um, about him and to, or hit like his his uh, sharp sword plays his uh, spotted filo plays, or you can go for the anonymous first play right, and you can beat to their sword, cut to their hand if they're pulling away right, um, with that passing step that goes into uh, Chingiari Ports of the Pharaoh, then you're setting a trap for them right. So if they try to come back narrow at you, then you spring that trap and you you catch them, and um, this is where I think. The, the two of these kind of coming together starts to really bring the tactical uh, dynamic of this entire thing together. And there's a quote from the Anonimo that I want to read. It's a, actually a, a full paragraph. I'm gonna, I'll try to get through this. Um, it, it, but it, I think it, it describes this perfectly. And this is, I think we can unpack this together because I think this is, this is wide and narrow play. This is how you can use these two things and weaponize them, um, but also like understand advantage uh, from both. So, uh, everyone must know and understand that in this ingenious art of the sword, one finds two ways of fighting. These are the wide play and the narrow play. And take note that both can be used safely. If you wish to be a good fencer, then you must understand that if you are fighting against one that understands narrow play, should you try to fight against them uh, from the wide play, then your talent will be confounded. So, if you find yourself against one who is in wide play, then it is necessary for you to fight from the narrow play as you prefer. And to render this more simply to those who wish to understand the art of defense, if you wish to use the full array of techniques and guards and all of your understanding, then when you, 
When you run across a fencer that fights in narrow play, then you will act as though you plan to fence in wide play, then astutely strike him from narrow play. And so too, if you find a fencer that fences from wide play, you should act as though you intend to fence from narrow play, but actually strike him from wide play. And thus, if you have the true art and someone fences from the wide play, you can hit him in the wide play. And likewise, if you find someone who fences in the narrow play, you can strike him in said narrow play. There's a lot to unpack there. I always like that one, yeah. It, it, but I it's, kind of think it's, that's sort of a level up. <laughs> it's like it, once it, you actually it, it have the, the feel for that. So this would actually kind of stand counter to your idea of Porta di Ferro Larga as an indicator of measure in Morozzo because they could very well also just be, you could be literally in, intending to fight in the narrow play, but going into Porta di Ferro Larga to act as though you are fencing in the wide play, which is a way to induce them to attack so that you can then fence them in the narrow play. So the idea of going to Porta di Ferro Larga as like that is the whole concept of measure. It's not yep. about yeah, it, it's it's you don't have the tempo to bring your sword back online. So if your opponent is gone wide, then you can let your sword go wide, right? That's the general rule of wide play is let your attacks be full. Because if Murazzo was violating that rule, then he would basically be giving his opponent a smaller tempo to attack him, and he wouldn't have the tempo to come back online to protect himself. Right, but that's where you get into the whole trick of Porti di Ferro Larga, which is essentially it's just a squeeze of the finger to bring your point online. So it looks like you've created an opening, but there's no real opening there. <laughs> but that's kind of a whole other level up. I, I, I personally think yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful invitation in a fairly tight measure. Because nobody can resist attacking into the Porta di Ferro Larga when it's tight. Whereas if it's wide, people are like, yeah, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. So I, I think it is measured opponent for sure. Because I think it goes <laughs> sure. back to the uh, the Anonimo Vienna and his, his breakdown. And also Vigiani and Tempo uh, in general. Um, but here what we have is we have using narrow play, right? So I would use narrow play to basically intimidate my opponent who most likely doesn't feel comfortable fighting in narrow play to continue to go wide and then I strike them with a wide play attack, right? So that's where I see like Murato, for example, where I would use, uh, and we'll, we'll get into, I'll get into that in a second, but um, well, not here, what I would do is I would try to fight somebody narrow. I'd make them think that I was trying to find their sword or something like that to get them to step away so I could strike a wide target. So I'd strike their hand or their leg, right? Okay. So, like what I was describing earlier with that sword and large buckler technique, where you come in with a thrust and you're thrusting in opposition of their sword with a stoccata, that's me acting like I want to fight narrow, right? I'm coming in with a thrust from, from Cota Lungastretta, and then I'm attacking the leg, so I'm going wide, which to me indicates that I'm trying to punish my opponent for not wanting to stay in that close measure because I've threatened that buckler press to the hand. Now they're starting to go wide. If they try to come back and attack me, I've gone down into Porta de Ferro Larga with my initial cut to the leg. If they try to come back and attack me through the center, now I'm stepping out with my left leg, I'm beating their sword, and then cutting back down to their legs um, again. And so there we have, I'm acting like I want to fight narrow to attack my opponent wide, right? Right. Yeah, I got it. And then with, uh, with Murato, uh, we have, you're acting like you want to fight, uh, you know, even, um, 
you could say that that rising falso, if it were to meet your opponent in the center, and let's say that they were committed to going to Mezespada, a lot of times, rather than trying to um, go for an action that'll allow you to uh, beat their sword away, a lot of times they'll they'll try to put pressure into your rising falso and try to pursue Mezespada, right? Which will create a bind. In that bind, you create a scenario where now you're on their outside because you're imported to Feral Larga, and that's the best place to get a press-up, is from the outside, because you right. can press their elbow, you're pressing their shoulders against their hips. Um, in general, that's where we see most of the press go for a successful like press to the arm uh, in, in the Bolognese right. tradition. And so that's what you're setting up, right? So you I think Maroto even says something play. about don't get into a false edge bind if you don't want to wrestle. Yeah. I think it's right. in the third assault of the sort of... And yeah, and I think Manchiolino says something relatively similar too, where he says that. Um, yeah, I'll find it later. But, well, so I kind of um, think we could kind of yeah, go on at this. It would actually be interesting to go into the sources and compare different, in, like actual look at instances of this being used. Yeah, uh, especially in like the anonymous larger plays and see where he's actually applying this and how that might be the case. Yeah, Marozzo, yeah. a very simple example is also in his two-handed sword section where he basically strikes towards the leg, inducing the opponent to, to basically, we also talked about that in the last session, to pull back their front leg and to attack towards the head. This way they can't shift their body weight back right. any further, but then he goes up and strikes them with a thrust in Guade d'Entrare. So it really is like provoking that first kind of action from the white play to then go in narrow. So, um, on, on the contrary, I just want to give a quick example of um, the wide play aspect of things, right? So, everybody's probably fought against a fencer that just didn't want, to, didn't want to stay and measure, right? Like, you attack them and they instantly retreat, and they instantly retreat, and they instantly retreat, right? Isn't that like all fencers? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> when you go Bolognese on them, <laughs> yeah. so, I have advantage um, of the guard here, I have advantage of the guard here, I have advantage of the guard here. Like, no, never mind. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to invite more to make it look <laughs> that yeah. they, they actually can do something. That's, right. That's, that's, and so, you know, Morato um, gives a, a funny um, sort of uh, description of what would happen if, if somebody who, who only knew wide play fought against somebody who knew both. Right, because we just heard the anonymous say that you need to know both, and that is that that fencer that knows both will chase the other fencer all the way Around across the, the fencing hall, right? Yeah, and um, and so uh, taking that further, both the anonymous and uh, Manchiolino say that if you are fighting somebody that constantly wants to retreat, you should act as though you have lost courage. So you should act right. like you want to go backwards. To lure them in, you want to act like you are fighting wide play or that you want to keep the fight at wide play to lure them into now coming narrow onto you so that way you can counter them and now you get into narrow play, mezzaspada, so on and so forth. You and this lure is them where into we get trap. into Yeah, this is where we get into the value of Dalagokia's fifth tempo, which is that when somebody is stepping forward, they cannot be stepping back at the same time. So if they have a exactly. propensity to continually retreat then you want to strike them in the instant when they're coming forward because they can't retreat then yeah that's that's awesome all right are we set <laughs> i'm maybe not subtle but are we content with our, our wide and narrow play yeah i think it's fine <laughs> yeah all right so what well, we have some we have some ideas about the the uh 
the extrapolation, the anonymous unique take on how to actually use it. Yeah. But that we'll save that for another time. That'll okay. be a fun yeah. argument. We'll, we'll build that out. Yeah. That I want to have fun. some sources and like plays to talk about and stuff. Yeah, that would be great. I, I like so, that. Yeah, we go over each and every defense and provocation after all. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> what? We were just doing Dalekoki. Yeah, I mean, whatever. So just with speaking... anonymous plays. Just oh, yeah. like it's, 700 episodes to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, what you missed, Stephen, is that he was trying to provoke you to attack. And this is where we're going next, which is to provoke, to provoke or to attack. To attack. That is the that question. Is the question. Yeah. So, uh, um, Martin, why don't you take it from there? Okay, so what I'll say is that every attack is a provocation, but not every provocation is an attack. Provocation is just some kind of motion or position that makes your opponent move. That can either be an attack, so you can make the opponent attack via an invitation, for example, could be also via a feint from really wide measure. For example, this uh, attack towards the legs uh, usually compels opponents to just withdraw their leg and strike you towards the upper openings. But it could also be a feint to provoke your opponent to defend, for example, to then work around their defense and keep, in, uh, keep on the pressure and go in there. The, the essence is make your opponent move, make them take a tempo that is big enough for you to strike them while they're still taking that tempo so you are safe while they are struck. Hmm. Yeah. Steve? Cool. Uh, so are we, do we want to talk about the differences between attacks and provocations? Or are we just expounding sort of generally on the awesomeness of provocations or... Yeah, just talk about all kinds of provocations. What is, yeah, what is a provocation? Okay. Like, what is all right, what, so, what does it mean to provoke your opponent? Like, that's right. that's kind of what we're getting at. Is well, let's a, start is, with attacks is, first, because it's a little okay. easier to understand. Attack an attack is the building block of a provocation. Without an attack, you have no actual anything to do with your provocation. A provocation is a dance. Like, it is really when you're fencing, you really are kind of dancing with somebody. That the time is the opponent's time the way they move. You are, the space is the distance between you. And a provocation is basically like part of the dance between the two of you. Um, there's a lot of different provocations, but they all kind of, there's, I think, two basic types. The number one is where you do stuff to get advantage and then you hit them. The other one is where you do something that makes yourself appear open or vulnerable in some way and that you predict and then you take control of them or you strike them when they try to seize control of that advantage and then it basically comes down to there are active fencers and there are passive fencers there are people who want to when you put a sword in their hand it is just their instinct to want to just start wailing on you and force you to make a mistake as you're defending yourself and then hope that they hit you that way. And there's people who continually want to give ground and force you to make a mistake where they can come in and pounce. And everybody I've met falls kind of somewhere on that spectrum when they start. And then over time, if they stick with it, they kind of move towards the middle. Um, and so it's just basically if you're, if you're wanting a more active strategy, you're looking to take control of your opponent's weapon and make them dance to your tune. And if you want to 
Uh, if you're more of a passive type of fencer, you're trying to create predictable attacks for your opponent so that you can take control of their sword. Except when you're facing the retreating opponent, like we were talking before, when you're an active fencer, then you, in that case, you want to create invitations for them to attack into where they feel safe. So that's provocations in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So I think there's a lot about not wanting to let your opponent stay in a, in a structured guard, right? So, you know, speaking to Martin's ad- advantages uh, that Vigiani was talking about is that one of the worst things that you can do is attack into a structured guard. Because if the opponent knows how to defend themselves and they know how to create counter-attacking opportunities out of their defense, then you have just basically given them the opportunity to strike you. Unless that's part of your plan. It it is, yeah, right. But that takes, yeah, and that's the chess game, right? That's where you can can create 40 chess. Yeah, right. So I think that there are kind of like, there are two two types of provocations. Uh, There's a a provocation of... um, invitation and then there's a provocation of attack and i think that both of them in particular are um meant to like you you see various guard positions uh sometimes you hear marazzo say that he's gonna expose his leg like he's pulling up his girdle you know to to show off his his nice thighs manly thighs and calves yeah encourage his opponent to attack him in the leg right (laughs) um so you know, sometimes we have uh, a provocation of um, invitation, or maybe we're in a guard, and maybe our opponent doesn't quite understand the nature of the Bolognese guards, and so they see us in Chingiari Porta de Ferro, and they decide to attack us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if we could only be so lucky every time. All right, so um, from Chingiari Porta de Ferro, there's always the opportunity that our opponent's going to see the the juicy invitation that we're giving them if they don't understand the nature and they might attack um then you have some guards like porta de ferro larga again they might think that they have a counter-attacking opportunity because we've given them the impression that we've broken one of the rules of the tempos right so maybe they understand dalaguke is five tempos of attack and we let our sword go wide Right? And then they think, haha, my moment, and they counterattack without realizing that we're just going to come up with a falso and beat their sword away or gain their sword and then thrust them in the face. Right? So we've got a lot of potential options here uh, of a, a provocation of, um, you know, you can, you can provoke somebody. Maybe you come forward and you're in Gordia Alta and you cut down to Porta de Ferro Larga to create that invitation for somebody to try to counterattack. Uh, you, you encourage them to give you that attack. So... You have the provocation of invitation. Um, and invitation is usually you deliberately breaking a rule to get somebody to try to counterattack you in some way, right? Or giving them a look that makes them think that they should attack you. Um, so then the provocation of attack would be... Basically, I think that the uh, provocation of attack is you're giving an attack to get them to try to defend that you can then take advantage by you're repositioning their sword. You're getting them to go to an extended position. So, um, you know, against a timid fencer, I think you would use provocations of attack because you're getting them to extend out of their guard where you're getting their arm to come away from their body. 
steal that principle again uh, from Fiore that I like to steal is you're getting them to go instabile. So they lose their structure when their arm goes forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you can get them to extend their arm out in their defense, now they're vulnerable. Now you can take advantage of their sword. And now, like the Anonymous says, you don't want somebody to gain your sword unless it is greatly to your advantage. In that right. case, you've lost leverage and it stops being to your advantage. So um, that's where I see provocations of attack a lot of times. You're, you're provoking your opponent into a defense that you can take advantage of. Um, and I think a lot of the provocations are meant to... Sometimes there's also a provocation of... The provocations are intended to create defensive opportunities, right? We see this a lot. Uh, this is one that I think uh, Ken Harding likes to really harp on is... Um, that sometimes you're provoking, you're giving it a, a, the look of an attack uh, to create an opportunity for your opponent to try to counter. So we, we kind of already talked about that, right? Like, are, uh, um, it, it's, a, it's a provocation of defense, which is usually that you're trying to, again, get the opponent to overextend instead of defensively this time, now offensively, where they're extending into their defense, either with a cut or a thrust. And now you can defend yourself and take advantage of it. And I see this... Uh, illustrated in both Murazzo and Manchialino's general advice that they give that every attack should be followed with an, a defense and every right. defense should be followed with an offense. And so I think that that's what they're getting at uh, with that. And that's kind of like how I wrap my mind around that and create that framework. Yeah, I think provocations really are meant to, to get you some kind of positional advantage. Like we have these attacks, we have feints, we have invitations, we also have beads or, or gliding thrusts around the blade. It's always around controlling the opponent's blade, making them do something that you can expect and then counteract accordingly to basically use that time to close the distance between you in a safe manner. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. A way to so the fundamental problem of any sword fight is, well, like we're saying, from any guard, anything can happen. And so it creates total chaos. And provocations are a way to, for a person with a structured sense of how fencing should go to impose their will on a potentially chaotic situation. So when you're fencing, don't be the guy that just throws an attack hoping it will hit. Be the guy that does a thing so that you will force your opponent to behave how you want them to, and then you can hit them in total control and grace like the masters instructed us to do. Yeah. And there, I think, the, the embellishments aren't actually, not, aren't actually not a contradiction of that principle. Because if we're, if we're talking, Marozzo Manchelino specifically, we all have these beautiful entries and also exits from the play, these embellishments between, it's always uh, a question of measure and tempo. So if you're in a, f a wide measure, if you have enough distance, you can use these actions. You can program your opponent to do certain kinds of actions, to, to think they have a tempo to strike you, to only then abuse it, or to intimidate them, to, uh, to then get on with... Um, follow-up attacks while they're just parrying, for example, and they're not finding the courage to, to go uh, with a counter-attack after their parry, for example. Right. So you really can make a lot of, out of these concepts. Or you go a bit more simple with 
dialogue okay where the play is more narrow maybe in the beginning and just constrain their blade gather into measure under control get that kind of control via a bead fire via pint or something like this and then just strike them with all the advantage that you gathered right and that is the ultimate key that I think that you're that we're really trying to get at is that you're just trying to create a situation where you can employ as many of Vigiani's advantages in an instant as possible. Yeah. All right, so let's um, let's kind of wrap this up with the mezzospada. Um, we, we're not going to get too too deep into mezzospada because stuff. yeah, we don't. I don't want to. Uh, we're gonna. Uh, Martin and I already agreed that we're gonna make this its own episode, mezzospada. We're gonna just do nothing but mezzospada. But right. um, Can't let's wait. let's introduce the idea of mezzospada because there is a fourth um, mode of play, right? So if we have narrow play and wide play, mezzospada starts to become its own thing. Um, and both Marazzo and Manciolino say it is the art, right? They say that it is like the the pinnacle of the art is is being able to control the fight in mezzospada. Um, they also say that it is the most important thing to understand because if you don't understand mezzospada, then you will always lose. Right? If you fight against yep. somebody who does, so yep. All right, let's talk mezzospada. Mark, what is yeah. mezzospada? So just just really quickly, uh, it's basically even a bit closer than the close play, the narrow play. I think um, the blades are usually described at crossing at the middle point. That's where the name mezzospada half blade comes from. Um, it's also like the, the distance where we see more grappling actions, more, even more constraining actions, less feints. So there are still some, if, especially as a follow-up action or an in-between action after an initial attack, for example. You will need to be really quick or the opponent will take the initiative at that kind of distance. It's also something that is, um, that is emphasized. And it's always described in one of two kind of ways, either as a false edge to false edge bind or as a true edge to true edge bind, which is, in my opinion, just referring to either an outside bind or an inside bind. So while I've seen uh, people also telling, well, they could both be standing in Cola Longa Estreta and then an inside bind would be still false edge to false edge, I think they, in general, always mean Porta di Ferro Estreta, and then false edge to false edge is outside, two edge to two edge is inside. Yeah, cool. So to expand on that a little bit further too, I mean, you have to understand that according to Marazzo and Manciolino, the best parry to do if somebody's cutting something like a reverso or thrusting to your outside is to parry with the false edge. So you should be false edge to false edge I mean, you'd be false edge to true edge against a reversal, but if somebody were thrusting, you'd be false edge to false edge against them unless they, were, they had their hand oriented differently. Um, but yeah, you're usually leading that with false edge, so maybe that's why. It's another potential thing for them, is that they're thinking of that from your perspective versus like your opponent necessarily. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm, I'm going to throw a monkey wrench in that. Um, so I don't think, so Moroto does make a point that it, false edge to false edge is outside and true edge to true edge is to the inside. So he's very explicit about that. I think in the case of Moroto, that's what it means. I don't believe that's necessarily the case for all the other authors, although I do think Manchelino is also outside and inside. Um, 
The Anonymable Agnese describes at least one true edge mezzo spada situation, which is an, on an outside bind. So I think in the case of the Anonymous Bolognese, that rule only means certain edges. So, and I think this might be one of the reasons why his, I've been playing with this, but his, uh, his uh, two-handed sword is only false edge to false edge, is that it actually can refer to inside binds that go false edge to false edge. Um, one big difference, I think, is that when you are, um, I'm going to have to use some foreign evil terms here, but these uh, false edge, these mezzospadas arise as a result of being in guardia di faccia, or long point, as the Germans would call them, or posta lunga. It's when your sword has completed a blow and it's at or very close to full extension, so you're no longer in a bind. So that's why it's not described as being from Porta di Ferro Lara or Porta di Ferro Strata or Cor Lunga Strata because in that case your sword is actually still pulled back somewhat to your body. This is the result of a of two blows meeting in the middle. Uh, and Mezza Spada to me is essentially just the equivalent to you know playing from the bind in German. Um, so all blows you make generally involve preparing on the opponent's weapon. So it would be, I think one classic Metzaspada action is the true edge bind uh, in sword and buckler, and you literally just turn from the true edge against your opponent's sword to putting the flat against your opponent's sword. You step into them and you just slice right up, right up to their face. I think that's his first one there. I think that's a great way of teaching it. You just change what part of your sword is against the opponent's weapon to create that play. Or, if your opponent is strong in the bind, they're pushing, then it would be cutting around and doing another thing. Um, and this is where all the, all the really cool stuff is, like knocking an opponent's weapon down with the hook of your pommel and then like hitting him in the neck at the same time. It, it's, I guess we can't go off too much on that to spot it, but... The, the key point I want to get across is it's the bind and it's when your swords are in guardia de faccia at full extension. And it's not necessarily the same idea among all the authors. Yeah, so the way that uh, Manchilino describes it is as you're at the strata of the half sword with your opponent and you are to be agent, you should be quick with your hands if you're slow and lazy. I'm sorry. Try that again. Sorry about that. As you are at the strata of the half-sword with your opponent, and you are to be agent, you need to be very quick of your hands, and if you are slow and lazy, you will always end up being patient. You must also know that you can only find yourself at the half-sword from two positions, that is, either true edge to true edge, meaning that your swords will be pointed at your left shoulders, or right. false edge to false edge, meaning that your swords will be pointed at each other's right shoulders. So, that's his, his overall description. Okay, so, so Manchelino is explicit about it too. So, Marota and Manchelino yeah. are both explicit about what it means. So um, I want to think to Dalagokia as well because um, like he always tells you if he like somewhere differs from the earlier authors and also references them. So I think it's fairly safe. Okay. He also gives just I think six plays each: two edge to two edge, false edge to false edge. So it's fairly narrow once again. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think he's pretty much consistent with that as well. At least okay. it works. Uh, okay. With with this kind of configuration for me. Sure. All right, so I think you, I'll, I'll go ahead and present my overall tactical yep. idea of how all of this works, and then you guys can, 
can agree, disagree, pick it apart, and then um, maybe we can we can kind of wrap this up. But my my general take is that from from the start of fencing, you know, you are approaching your opponent, you're watching their sword hand, uh, being mindful of your measure because of your tempo, and you're using both wide play and narrow play based on how your opponent reacts to like one what guard they're in because you know whether or not they're in a wide guard or a narrow guard whether or not their point is online or offline and uh, so you kind of know what mode of attack they want to go for what tactical mode they want to go for by recognizing what guard they're in as you're approaching your opponent your ultimate objective is to control the center of the fight in some way um, and that is even if you're attacking wide to start to go back to the middle you do want to eventually have some level of control of, of the center so that way you can gain advantage to the outside. Then from there, from the outside, your ultimate objective is to press to Mezzospada because it's the safest place that you can get to control something where now you have complete control over your opponent's weapon. Like that's your ultimate objective. Right. If your opponent denies you that, then you continue to fight. You transition from narrow play into wide play and strike them wide. If they commit to or perhaps try to interrupt your attack and go narrow into you, then perhaps you act like you want to fight wide by stepping around with the intent of creating and changing the line of attack so that way you have you recreate that narrow play opportunity to then strike them narrow. So bringing all of that together back into one tactical paradigm, I see Mesospada as the ultimate objective of where you're trying to go. And you use this as a pressure tactic where whether it's Strindere of Space or whether it's like using your provocations so that way your opponent tries to attack you, you defend yourself and then start to attack them. A lot of times in that attack, what we see throughout the, the Bolognese corpus is if you do defend yourself and follow with an attack, it creates a very narrow situation where your swords are now crossed at Mezzospada and now you transition into something like trying to grab their hand or that's where we get the watch their left hand when you get close, right? Right. So you start to transition into this more narrow play focus, and that's where, you know, either they stay, and you you are now the first one who's initiated Mezzospada. As here, Manchialino tells us that you don't you shouldn't be slow and lazy. You need to be fast and aware. Um, and and for your opponent, it is if they decide to pull away, then you have all these wide play opportunities. You can strike them in the hands, the legs, and things like that. So that's my overall idea of like the the tactical paradigm kind of pulling all of this together. Uh, one thing I think I'd also add to that is, because I pretty much agree with that, the more skilled two fencers are, the more likely the fight's going to end in Metzospada. Because yeah. so much of everything else revolves around them not, around them making a mistake and capitalizing on their mistake. And that the logical result of any two well-trained fencers is that they will be in Metzospada with their swords locked together at some point. That's a great point. Yeah, I think we always are striving to fight from a position of advantage. It can mm -hmm. be advantage literally off position, could be an advantage of uh, measure, could be advantage of timing. Also, just like programming the opponent, so psychological advantages mm -hmm. also play a role here. So when we're out of measure, the fight already begins, right? Mm -hmm. the, the kind of posturing... The kind of the kind of way that we are positioning ourselves that already plays a uh, plays um, plays a role here. So we always want to make our opponent take a tempo that they shouldn't have, and in that tempo we strike them while staying safe. 
I think that's um, that's it. Yeah, that's that's it. That's a good way to. I think that's actually a great one to just roll out, roll out on that idea because that is the essence so. of what all the stuff is. Make yeah. them take a bad tempo and take advantage of it. And if we can't, then we're wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. just the same. Just the same. Still, still positional advantage. Still making them take bad moves. Right. All the same. Right. Same thing. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back with more episodes. So, thank you, everybody.